Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, Saving You, and it is part of the Power of Connections Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org, or you can always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. We're in this, this series called The Power of Connection. And today, we're going to talk about a most famous prophet by the name of Isaiah, who connected powerfully with this generation in the 7th century. But his great connection with his generation began with himself. It began with Isaiah having an encounter with God that changed him first. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to call this series Saving You. Save You. Uh, Here's a diagram that I used last week to show how your relationships work. And it goes from casual friendships to close friendships to um, to uh, core friendships that you have. And so uh, uh, those, those core friendships are really important. But you know, if you notice in that diagram, I don't, if it's still on the screen, you can see it. In the middle of that diagram, it says the word me. And, and today I want to talk to you about what is happening with you. What has God done in your life? Something needs to happen. You need, you need to put everything on hold right now for a minute and make sure something happens in your relationship with God before you go try to save the world. You know, sometimes we're like, uh, uh, God gives us the golden rule. Jesus said, do unto others you have been doing to you. We're told to love one another. And we go, we look at God and we say, great idea, God. I got that. I'm, I'm going to go do that. And we're kind of like me. I remember uh, as a young man, my brother and I decided one day we're going to go play golf. We'd never played golf before. We never had a lesson. We didn't know anything about playing golf. And we go out and we tried to play golf. And by about seven or eight holes, we were so discouraged that we just quit because we could not make that little white ball go anywhere near where we wanted it to go. So I never, I didn't play golf again for like 35 years before I picked up a club again. But you know, this time I went and got a lesson. I I found out I didn't even know how to hold a club. I found I had no idea. I'm still not a very good golfer, but at least I can get around a golf course and enjoy myself now because I realized I needed help and I couldn't do this all by myself. And some of us are like that. We're, we're We're trying to save the world and we're not saved. You know, it's, it's, it's the oxygen mask principle. You know the oxygen mask principle, right? Some of you are shaking your head. You know what I'm talking about. It's uh, if you're traveling with a child or someone who needs assistance, secure the mask on yourself before you assist them. We've all heard the stewardess or the steward give us that message on the airplane. Well, it's the oxygen mass principle. Something needs to happen between you and God. Something needs to happen to you. Now, I know when I use the word saved that you think about heaven and hell. And I certainly believe in heaven and hell. And I believe the ultimate reward of being saved is we spend eternity in God's realm. 
and I believe that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. But you know what, guys? Eternity begins now. Eternity be saved begins with you now, and eternity starts now. I define saved as when you choose to let God rescue you from an ordinary, self-absorbed life. You got that? I define saved as letting God rescue you from an ordinary, self-absorbed life. So let's find out. Let's take a look today. What transformed Isaiah? And could that same thing transform you? The first thing I want you to see about Isaiah is Isaiah saw God in his authority. Isaiah saw God in his authority. Now, Isaiah was a good man. We, we don't read that he was an evil man or a, or, a, or a bad person or a wicked person or disobedient person or rebellious person. He was like a lot of you that are sitting there today listening to me. He was like a lot of you, a person that anybody would be happy to have as their next door neighbor. I mean, have you ever had a next door neighbor that was not nice? I, I, I've, I've experienced that in my life. Uh, but uh, uh, he was the guy you, you'd like, probably like to have lived down the street, lived down the block. You'd probably invite him over for dinner and stuff like that. But he did not have a view of God based in reality. See, you can have a concept of God, but it's not a, the reality of God. So today, by God's help and God helping me communicate, I want us to move us from a conceptual God to a real God, a God who is sitting on the throne. And you see, this was unique. He, he saw God ruling from the throne. He hadn't seen that before. A lot of people haven't seen that before. A lot of people haven't seen a God who is on the throne, a God who is king of the earth. A lot of people haven't seen that. That's very common. In fact, in the world that Isaiah lived in, they were surrounded by pagan nations. They were surrounded by pagan gods. Pagan gods didn't, you never see a pagan god sitting on their throne. You notice that? You never see the, if you read the writings of Marduk and uh, other pagan gods that you read about in ancient history of the Egyptians and Babylonians, later the Greeks and the Romans, their mythical gods never sat on the throne. They never got involved in legislation. The, you know what a, what a king does? A king cares about his constituents. A king cares about the lifestyle of his constituents. So you see, the, the Torah, the Jewish scriptures were based on on a, a, a God who sat on the throne, a God who cared about the people in his kingdom. That's why when you read the Torah, you read, when you read the Old Testament, you see that there's stuff about um, your relationship with your family. There's stuff about your relationship with your neighbor. There's stuff about personal hygiene. <laughs> there, there's stuff, uh, there, there's advice given to you about every dimension of your life that gives you this path for a healthy life because God cares about every part of your life. So Isaiah all of a sudden went from a God that was far away that he just kind of knew something about. Maybe he thought he was, was a good friend and he saw him as someone who, who wanted to be in a legislative role in his life, who cared about every aspect of his life, who would help him with his marriage, who would help him with his relationship with his neighbor, who would, who would even address his physical health. That's the God that he saw. 
Isaiah had unintentionally become pagan in his view of God. I think that's happened in our world today. In a popular 2011 talk called Atheism 2.0, School of Life founder Elaine de Button advocated a new kind of atheism. He, he advocated an atheism that could retain the goods of religion without the downside of belief. He suggested we respond to the preachers of atheism by saying, thank you, Plato, thank you, Shakespeare, thank you, Jane Austen. That sounds kind of lame, doesn't it? When you think about what Isaiah saw, a God who was high and lifted up on his throne. It just doesn't work. You, you notice that that, uh, that was 2011 and that hasn't caught on. We don't, we don't have houses of worship uh, uh, around where people are saying, oh, praise Plato. Oh, praise Jane Austen. Oh, praise Shakespeare. That, that's just not happening because something deep in your soul knows that's not true. You know there's a real God. Now, the evidence is rapidly mounting in our culture today that we need a God on a throne high and lifted up. We need a God of authority. Who can deny in my audience today that we haven't seen God on the throne much in the last 50 or 60 years in Western culture, in America? It's been bad for the world, and it has especially de deteriorated our relationships. It's especially hurt the power of connection. Church attendance has dropped from 70% to 50% since from 1999 to 2018. 20% drop in church attendance. There's also been a 25% decline in voting in that same period of time. People are not engaging. There's a 50% decline in social, civic, and fraternal, fraternal activities. People joining social and civic groups in the community there's been a substantial decline in philanthropy, in people giving of their money to causes. Americans, that's happened to Americans inside the church and outside the church. There's been a significant lower income that people are giving to charitable causes as we move away from a God who's on the throne. In fact, Robert Putnam who wrote an article in the 90s that later became a book called Bowling Alone. He said volunteering in almost every age category is down over that 20-year period that I mentioned a minute ago. In spite of this, it, it, what I'm saying is in spite of this explosion of digital connection, social media, digital connection, in fact, Remember, you may remember a time when you thought if we could just get everyone together talking, we would have world peace. Remember when you may have thought that if you're, if you're my age, you probably, th you might have thought that if, if we could just get everybody connected, we're all, we're all peaceful people, right? We're all, we're all good people. If we could just get everybody connected and talking, we would just, we would just have a love fest. And we've gotten that opportunity. It's called Twitter. It's called Facebook. It's called Instagram. We've, we've gotten our Instagram's pretty peaceful place, I've noticed, you know? Because we're just kind of sending nice pictures of ourselves on Instagram. But boy, I'm in, I'm in the Twitter sphere, and it's, it's pretty tough in Twitter sphere. And it's pretty awful in there sometimes. We're, we're getting us together. You know what we're doing? We're tearing each other's eyes out. We're 
tearing each other's throat out. We're clawing each other's eyes out. And I know, I know what somebody's sitting there on their couch saying, yeah, but you Christians are just as bad. You know, I watch the Christians on, multi, on, on social media. And let me tell you something. When Christians act like that, they are acting like they don't have a God who's on the throne. Just like when the non-Christian, just like when the atheist acts like that, they're operating from the same principle that God is not in control. When you know that God is in control, then you're free to love each other because you don't have to be responsible to control each other. Jesus isn't always the king we want, but he's always the king we need. That's my point today. See him high on the throne. I know, I know some of you are saying, well, how can you define God as being like this or like that or like the other? Haven't you heard the parable of the four blind men, right? And the elephant, right? You know that parable? Four blind men, elephant. Four, four blind men see an elephant. One, one's the trunk and he's holding the trunk and he says, you know, th this creature is it's like a snake. And one's, one's got a hold of the, the tail, and he has another description. One's got the leg, and it's a tree. You know what I mean. Four different guys touching a different part of the elephant, giving a different description. So that's the way God is. Whatever you, God is whatever you experience him to be. Wait a minute, though. That story has a big weakness. Somebody had to see the whole elephant, or they couldn't have written the story. Somebody had to know it was an elephant. Somebody had to not be blind. So we're not talking just about blind people. We're talking about people who can open their eyes. And I am asking you today, I am appealing you today, open your eyes today and see a God who is on the throne. Even in these difficult and scary times, I see daily a God who is on the throne. Tim Keller tells this story about a moment that changed his life. He said, a lady leading a retreat that I attended in Colorado asked the following. If the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles by the way, was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And the galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust in the universe. Yet the Bible says Jesus Christ holds the universe together with the word of his power. And then the lady asked this question. Is this the kind of person you ask to come into your life and be your assistant? And she told the students in that retreat, I want you all to go take a walk for an hour and think about that and what kind of implications that has for your life. And it was at that point that Tim Keller, who's made such an impact on the world from Redeemer Church in Manhattan, it was that point that he dedicated his life to ministry when he decided to see God as high on the throne and bring himself under that authority. See, our souls, our mind and emotions are designed to need authority. We don't need a God that we're equal to. We need authority. You know, I have a fantastic little granddaughter named Ellie. And um, she's, she's so much fun. Uh, she'll call me up on sometimes and FaceTime me. 
and talk to me for five minutes. I don't understand a word she's saying, but I love every minute of it. A while back, Jay and Mara uh, went out of town and we ended up with her for a couple of days. And you know, she, she, wouldn't, she would hardly eat and she loves food and she wouldn't sleep. Why? Because she was missing the two people in her life that are elevated to be her authorities. God has designed her little mind and body to be aware and to be dependent on authority. And so am I. Compared to God, I'm not even as big as Ellie. I'm not even as old as she's two years old. I'm not even that old compared to God. Who am I to think that I want a God that I can't see high and lifted up above me and, and ruling my life? But having a ruler just tells you what to do. That's all. That's not enough. I need someone to inspire me. I want you to know, when I think about God, what's so amazing about God is God thinks about every detail of how I'm wired. He wired me to be like him. And so he appeals to me based on what I need Ba not based on what he needs. All the pagan gods around Isaiah and in Isaiah's world all operated from the premise of what they needed. Every pagan god, you read the stories of mythical gods of Persia and Egypt, Greek and, he and Roman gods. They all were based on their mood they were in and what they were desiring. But we have a God who designs his approach to us based on what we can handle. And so let's follow the narrative of the story. And he doesn't just stop with a guy who's a God who's high and mighty. It says in verse 3, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And we had these heavenly creatures that saw a God that when they saw this God, they were, react they were reactive to, to his beauty, not his authority. But his beauty, Isaiah saw God in his beauty. You know, this magnificent God inspired worship instead of using his authority to demand worship. See, the mythical gods demanded worship. My God doesn't demand worship. He inspires it. He shows me his beauty. Remember Nebuchadnezzar that some of you remember, some of you probably never read the Bible in your life, and that's okay. But, uh, but some of you have read the Bible, and you know this story. Maybe if you hadn't read the Bible, you've heard of this story uh, about three guys that got thrown in a fiery furnace. You know what that story's about? That story's about a king who said he was a god, and he said, if you don't worship me, there's a, a furnace over there that we're going to throw you into. Now, what, what if that happened to you? you go to some church and they got a furnace over in the corner and they say everybody that doesn't praise the Lord today everybody that doesn't get their hands up praising the Lord we got a place for you man you'd be motivated wouldn't you if we had the doors locked you'd be motivated you'd be yes thank God hallelujah <laughs> no that's not your God though your God doesn't demand worship he inspires it amen because of his beauty no notice that they said the word three times holy 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 this is, a, this is something people who are a lot smarter than me tell me, that in the Bible, when a word is said more than once, it's meant that it has a greater emphasis. And so a lot of times you see the word doubled. You see a word two times. 
in, in the Bible. Several references that I could go to, but I won't take the time to go. There's several, several references in the Bible where God's, Jesus would say a word twice. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you know? In other words, I, I really want you to listen to this. I'm saying it twice. You know, maybe some of you guys, your wife does that to you, <laughs> right? These seraphims, these heavenly creatures were so impressed with the glory of the beauty of God that they went, holy, holy, holy. They tripled the word. We hardly ever see that in all of scripture. The beauty of the Lord, according to Don Stewart, can be defined as God possessing everything in his character that is desirable, everything that is good and righteous that has its ultimate fulfillment in God. You know, in 2016, Harvard health professor Tyler Vanderveel and John Seneff wrote a USA article entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. The peace begins. If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? Those authors of that USA Today article go on to outline the mental and physical health benefits that are correlated with going to church and participating in religion. He says, and they say, for most Americans, going to church and participating in religion will, will extend their mortality 20 to 30 years. They liken it to the same impact of quitting smoking, going to church, and having some sort. Now, that, that's the only way they know how to define a relationship with God. We know it's a lot more than that. Those of us who are, have, have faith, we know it's a lot more than that. But that's the only way they know to study it. And it said, though, he went on to say in the article, those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. Rebecca McLaughlin, who writes about this in her book, Confronting Christianity, makes this statement. She said, does religion do bad things sometimes? Sometimes, of course. But to say religion is bad, it's like saying drugs are bad. Sure, drugs are bad if you don't differentiate between cocaine and life-saving medication. So I thought that was really good. In verse 5, Isaiah responds to the beauty of God, though, by saying something very interesting. He said, woe is me. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've lived among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What an interesting response to, to the beauty of God. Isaiah's response to beauty was to go from worship to woe. It's hard for modern people to understand this. Because we have built... We, we, we have designed psychological health around our, our, our entire model around self-esteem. Our entire model of mental health and social engagement has been built around self-esteem and do you think highly of yourself? And here we, we, here we, have, a, here we have a story in the Bible where someone gets an accurate view of God and they think less of themselves, it appears. And we go, wait a minute. And I knew, I knew I shouldn't have tuned into this live stream. I knew there was something. I knew religion was bad. I knew Christianity was bad. There are the preachers up there talking about people need to feel bad about themselves. Well, 
Think about this for a minute. Can you really see God and still think the same about yourself? Imagine that you um, are a, a musician. I'm, I, I used to be a musician, and I went to Nashville one time. I thought I was a really good musician until I went to Nashville. And everybody could play the piano better than I could. In fact, I had an experience one time when I, I, I was in my church. I was a kid, and I started playing the piano in my church. And, and I really developed this identity because I could play a particular style that nobody else in the church could do. And, and, and I had a, quite an ego about this. I was like a 14-year-old kid, and I was playing the piano at church, playing the keyboard at church all the time. And, and I, could, I, I could play a particular style. I could mention different artists, that, but those of you are, aren't old like me, you wouldn't even know who they were. Different artists, and I could take their records, and I could do exactly what they did, and I thought I was hot stuff. I'll never forget one, one Saturday night, we had this group come in, and this young lady played the piano with the group. They were called the Perot family. They were singers. And she played the style that I played about a thousand times better. And I remember feeling so defeated. Oh, yuck. Woe is me. I thought I was good. Now, do you know what I did? I went and met her, and I started taking piano lessons from her. <laughs> That's what I did, because I said, I'm undone. I'm no good. I thought I was good. I'm terrible. That's the same thing that happens. That's the process. That's the process of being saved is you find out you need to be saved. Some of you remember my, my friend Al Landry that has gone on to be with the Lord now. And as I look down the auditorium now, he used to set one, two, three, four seats back right there. It's where Al would sit every Sunday. And um, Al, I guess some of you, some of his family, you may be listening, watching this right now. I hope you are. And uh, Al used to tell me this story a few times about he was, I guess, quite the football player locally. He played uh, Milford High School, played some semi-pro football. And one day he got a chance to go try out for the New England Patriots. And he's told me the story. He goes over there and stands on the sidelines during practice. And he watched how fast those guys were running, how hard they were hitting each other. And he turned around and left and said, no. You know, if I don't find that the God is so beautiful that he's at a whole other level than me, how can he be my savior? God, see, God's response to our humility is to deal with our roots of self-hatred. What are the roots of our self-hatred? The roots of our self-hatred is that we are comparing ourselves with one another. The Bible says, you are not wise, you that comp you compare yourselves among yourselves. L look at what verse 6 says. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Here's the, here's the deal, guys. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We're sinners. We need a Savior, not a PR firm. I said, we need a savior, not a PR firm. We're, we're connecting, we're connection disasters because our self-worth is based on competition, not God's unmerited favor. 
How can you possibly get along well with other people, which is what this series is about? How can you possibly get along with other people if you don't think you need grace? If you think, well, they need grace, they need, they need a savior, but I'm in good shape. I'm a good person. We, we tend to be emotion, also, we tend to be emotionally torn up inside because we swing back and forth. We swing back and forth from insecurity to arrogance. We get around some people and we feel so superior. We get around other people, we feel inferior. So we're, we're, we're just messed up. We're just confused. But the soul surgery that God wants to do with us, the soul surgery that God wants to do with us is you don't base your self-worth anymore on how you compare with another keyboard player or your physical appearance compares with somebody else or, or your, your bank account compares to somebody else or, or the numbers watching your live stream are compared to another pastor's live stream, how many people are checking into his church. I mean, I, I'll hear some numbers today that will make me feel like a loser I guarantee you. But God never intended for you to base your self-worth on competition and comparison. God intended that you base your self-worth on the knowledge that although God doesn't need you, he wants you. And although he doesn't need you, he's crazy in love with you. And he cannot keep his eyes off of you. You base your self-worth on the fact that this high and mighty, beautiful, majestic God loves me. And when you get that straight, all your relationships. That's, that's what a Mother Teresa understood. That's why she was so powerful. Her, her self-worth wasn't, wasn't based on anything but the love of Christ but it only helps so much to have a God who's impressive, a God who sits on the throne and whose magnificent draws you to him. Something else needs to happen. A third thing needs to happen. And that's the third thing that Isaiah saw. Isaiah saw God not only in his authority, not only in his beauty, he saw God in his vulnerability. Verse 8 then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now, now look at this transformation in Isaiah. He's someone who hasn't really seen the Lord. Now when he finds out th that God is saying, I have a mission to save the world and I want you, you who just told me you were woe is me and I'm undone, you who just declared yourself a sinner, I want you, Isaiah, to be my partner. And I want you to help me save the world. I want you to help me take the message of grace and salvation. And man, did he ever do it. Read the book of Isaiah sometimes in your spare time while you're sequestered and in quarantine. Read the book of Isaiah and you will see somebody who understood the power of the gospel and the power of Christ for the world. See, Isaiah sees that God has no need for humans, but desperately craves a relationship with them. Whom shall I send? Who will go, what's God saying? God said, I gotta have somebody help me to pursue these human beings that I'm in love with, that I can't take my eyes off of. Let me give you a side note. Notice what he says. Who will go for us? 
He didn't, God didn't say who will go for me, who will go. You know what that tells me, friends? That all of heaven is interested in you. That all the angels of heaven, all those seraphims, all the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have one thought on their mind today, and that's you. They want a relationship with you. They want to save you. The, the Trinity, the entire heavenly community is weak with desire for humanity. See, desire makes you vulnerable. Isaiah understands. Now, if, if, if it's very confusing if you read down to verse 10. He says uh, to Isaiah, make the heart of this people calloused and their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It sounds like God is saying, I'm going to make it impossible for them to love me. That's not what he's saying at all. Isaiah understands that the unresponsiveness of humans is because they, God has offered them a level of relationship that they're turning away. It, it, it's kind of like this. Some of you may have had this experience. You got interested in somebody and you were crazy about them and you wanted a deep, intimate relationship with them and they just wanted to be friends. You know what happens when that happens? You, know, you, you all know what happens. There comes a day when that person that you just want to be, that you want to have a, you want to spend the rest of your life with and they just want to go out to dinner with you. There comes a day when they say, listen, stop calling me. Stop emailing me. Stop texting me. That's what God is saying here. I, I've got a world out there that just wants to be a friend. And I want to have an intimate, everlasting, eternal relationship with them. And so, they send the message to God. They're, in other words, it's almost as like God is hardening their hearts. If God would just be happy to say, oh, let's be friends. Yeah, we can just be friends. I'll pop in when you want me. You come see me on Sunday, once a week. Pop in and see me on Sunday. But God says, no, I want to be, I want to be deeply, deeply connected with you. This God who is lonely for us. There's, there's a very interesting part of this verse. The last part of the chapter, he talks a very, very confusing part of the passage. He talks about a, a root coming out of a stump. And the Bible identifies that root in the New Testament as Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He means that Israel was going was to reject him and they were going to cut the tree down of the relationship. But out of that dead relationship, God was so desperate for us that he was going to send his son and his son was going to spring out of that deadness and be the savior of the world and offer and re-offer and re-offer. Somebody talk about the God of the second chance. Man, we don't just have a God of the second chance. We've got a God of the 10,000 chances. The miracle of grace and what consistently differentiates Christianity from paganism is our God's insistence that he identify as our servant. Think about that. Jesus riding that donkey into Jerusalem, identifying as our servant. God made the choice. I will go to any lengths, including going to earth and dying like a slave in order to have a relationship with mankind. 
Caravaggio was a famous artist who in 1601 was commissioned to paint the first pope that the Catholic Church believes was Simon Peter, right? You know what Caravaggio did? He painted the first pope. It's a very famous painting. He painted the first pope, and this was after centuries of popes in, 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 in regal uh, attire and pomp and circumstance. But Caravaggio painted a picture of the Pope as Simon Peter being crucified upside down. Because he understood that God in his desperation to have a relationship with us came and identified as our servant. It's kind of like my daughter Elise is back home now and Elise has had some such problems with her lungs and so you know, naturally, we're, we're a little hyper-concerned about the coronavirus. And we don't want her to get it. And, you know, and I was like not doing all the things and not being quite as... I was careful, but not as careful. But when I thought about her coming back home from college, which she did a couple of days ago, I went into, I went into hyper-gear, man. I, I put the painter's mask on when I went to the grocery store and I put on rubber gloves. I felt so ridiculous. And, 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 and I washed down the... I took the... Uh, disinfectant and disinfected my steering wheel when I got in the car and wiped down every, every item of groceries before I brought it in the house. Why? Because that's my baby. And I don't want her to get this. And I don't want anything bad to happen. I don't, I, I, the thought of maybe living without her is something I can't handle. You know, if I'm an earthly father and I have that kind of concern for my daughter, how much more does the Heavenly Father love you today? So, the Lord I have met is good for humans. And when we humans yield to his powerful, beautiful, vulnerable, saving power, then you know what happens to us? We become better for one another. Now maybe you're sitting there today in your living room and you have never prayed to receive Christ as your personal savior. You've never made that decision. You've never seen God Christ is high on the throne. You've never seen his beauty and you've never considered his vulnerability. But today I want to ask you to consider that. And I want to ask you to make a contract, make a covenant with God with your mouth right now. You've been, maybe you've try, been trying to achieve salvation by being a good person, by being a kind person, by giving, by, by volunteering your time. Those are all good things. But only God can save your life. Only God can transform your heart. And right now, I want you to join me in a prayer while we ask him to do that. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every person in my audience today that those who have not taken that step of faith to receive Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that right now they would invite him into their life, invite him to be the king on the throne, the greatest treasure that they admire, and the humble servant who models for them what it's like to serve one another. We pray for it, we believe for it, and we welcome every new person into the kingdom of God today. In Jesus' name, amen.